they felt they were honoring his autonomy and they were in fact facilitating his illness and when i visited him although he was medicated when i visited him it was the encounter with the power of his illness which he was talking about that changed everything for me as well i understood it wasn't a social construct i understood it was not caused by you know psychoanalytic buried emotions i understood that something that he was sick and that that was a, that was he could do extraordinary things but he required help for his illness and he wasn't getting it well that is just one small part of the story of jonathan rosen's best friend michael lauder they were childhood friends and later on michael became famous for having supposedly conquered schizophrenia and then for the tragedy when it was clear that he hadn't we welcome jonathan rosen the author of the best minds a story of friendship madness and the tragedy of good intentions welcome to our podcast schizophrenia three moms in the trenches from the place where schizophrenia and real life collide east coast west coast middle america with miriam feldman mindy greiling and randy k finally a place to talk about the truth welcome to the last episode of season 3 this is episode 75 We are so excited to have Jonathan Rosen here with us tonight. He wrote a book we all loved. I don't know about you guys, but it made me cry. It's called The Best Minds. We'll be talking about friendship and let's call it madness and the tragedy of good intentions. It tells a powerful true story through the eyes of a friend. The New York Times called this book brave and nuanced, an act of act of tremendous compassion. a literary triumph and the wall street journal called it immensely emotional and unforgettably haunting it came out this year and i agree with both of those reviews but before we bring jonathan in we'll just do a, a quick catch up mimi we missed you last time but you were I in italy you. <laughs> <laughs> the best excuse in the world you were in italy on a retreat so welcome back but tell us you just finished um Well, tell us about the documentary that you were working on yesterday. Well, um, we and we being uh, a group of the parents of patients of Dr. Leitman decided a couple years ago. It's been going on a while that we needed to do a documentary about Dr. Leitman and about Clozapine, and it's a documentary that's really aimed at being a teaching tool. Hopefully, will be. seen in hospitals and learning institutions and nami meetings and things like that and it really is talking about um the benefits and the the good things about using clozapine and about Dr. Leitman's protocol. So we've been working on that and we're I think it's going to be out this spring. I think we're there. And yesterday I'm here in New York and yesterday my friends Tony Shalhoub and Brooke Adams have generously agreed to narrate and so we filmed all the narration yesterday and boy it sure is nice working with professionals <laughs> they're so great yes yeah, they like, are they so both doing. of them are so yes, great yeah. well we'll look forward to that okay. and we will hear more about it and maybe have Dr. Leitman back on as the docu- documentary gets That's closer a good idea. still mm-hmm. one of our most listened to episodes 
And uh, speaking of which, and Clazarill and ups and downs, uh, Mindy, how how are you doing? You've had a little glitch. We had a few little glitches in our lives. Mindy, you want to just briefly share what's going on? Yeah, just to show that recovery is not a straight line. You know, I have had nothing, but Jim is doing great, you know, words to say about him for quite a while. But last week, um, one of his lab tests showed that his clozapine had uh, spiked and it was he was getting more of it than usual. So Dr. Leitman just lowered it a tiny bit. But that somehow has thrown him off. And yes, a couple of days ago, when Roger, my husband, went to pick him up from work, he wasn't there. And about the time he should have been coming out the door and Roger was getting worried, Jim called and he was, this work is in St. Paul. Jim was over across the river in Minneapolis and disoriented and didn't really know where, how he got there or where he was. And so Roger had to try to get him and get him back to the car. And Jim was on a part of the campus where Roger couldn't drive to and Jim couldn't walk. So it was quite an episode but Jim is home now and um, doing better. And Dr. Lakeman is working his magic. But recovery is never a straight line. And then I want to just say briefly, I had two exciting events uh, a couple of weeks ago. One was uh, my daughter had a book event for me at the National Press Club, where she's a former National Press Club president. And we had two other National Press Club presidents in the audience, mostly journalists. And um, that was really, really exciting. And it had supposed to have been like three years ago before COVID, but we finally got it in. And then the very next night was the Treatment Advocacy Center 25th Gala, where our guest tonight, Jonathan Rosen, was the keynote speaker. So maybe that kind of leads us into, into him. We all wore our ball gowns, we women. It was a black tie event, very fancy at the Hay Adams uh, which is like a really nice Washington DC hotel. Oh, that's wonderful. And yes, we all, you know, I always show a, a slide of the game shoots and ladders when I talk about recovery, because, you know, if you're just listening to us, by the way, uh, thank you for discovering our podcast. We are schizophrenia, three moms in the trenches. Those are the trenches of having, in our case, sons with schizophrenia. We're also authors of books, and we advocate for our families all the time. Uh, I we went go to, to Jonathan, could I just add one more thing? Yeah. Angela, my daughter, gave a little talk before I did at this event, and she gave Schizophrenia Three Moms in the Trenches a really nice plug. And the people she had invited were pretty much all people that had an interest in mental illness. Uh, you know, she had... They were journalists, but they were were often there with a double hat. So we got a really nice plug at that event. That's wonderful. The wonderful thing about a podcast is not just ours, but all of them, blogs and podcasts, they're out there. And I'm hearing now from people who are discovering our first three episodes, which were during COVID, I think, when your books first came out and we first met each other. And and the content is always there. You can always search on some of the episodes that we mention. And like the Dr. Leitman episode, I don't know the episode number offhand, but just search on Leitman when you see wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find some of these episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, I usually stick a graphic up there to help you out. Um, as for me, very quickly, uh, if you don't know, my son is currently awaiting a second court date and it things move slowly 
He moved very slowly. He has been in there two months, and I finally got the form to fill out to be able to visit. So that's kind of where we are, but he he seems safe, and they're giving him his Haldol. So for now, I'm happy about that and living one day at a time. I do want to read one more thing, and then we're going to bring in Jonathan. There is a girl who writes to me. And I often forward it to you guys. And her name is Heather. I'm not going to share her last name. And I've just named her our resident poet. Heather has schizophrenia and is such a a beautiful writer. And her poems are long. So I'm I'm only going to read a verse or two. But I just want to share. It's just like the minds. Jonathan's book is called The Best Minds. And Heather has the best mind. She's a beautiful poet. And she's writing about her condition. And, you know, she writes where she is right now, how she feels. Four month, four weeks have passed since water touched my skin. A monthly chore that feels impossible to begin. Choosing an outfit, a daunting daily task, leaving me paralyzed, unable to unmask. Delilah, my beloved, a tortoiseshell grace, I'm guessing a cat, I tend to her litter, providing a clean space, her meals five a day in portions so small, a little grazer, she trusts me above all. And she goes on, but in one poem, the despair that she feels where it seems impossible to take a shower and to a small extent, I think we've all had days like that, but she's had a month like that, and yet she can feed her cat five meals a day. There's love there and there's care. So Heather, thank you for writing another beautiful poem. And um, if I get Heather's permission, I'll put more of it in the show notes. Coming up on season four of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches, we will open with Tony Roberts, who has um, written a book. I'm one of the, um, one of the contributors called Hope for Troubled Minds of like love letters and letters from family members to their family members with mental illness and a lot more. Tony is going to be a wonderful guest. We do have Gordon Levine coming from the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance. Finally, where uh, we don't have a date yet, but we will get Judge Leifman from Florida on here. I swear we will. I've just heard from Katie R. Dale of the National Shattered Silence Coalition. She'll be coming on. And um, Kevin Early, who is Peter Early's son, will be joining us to share his experience with psychosis and bipolar. So we have a lot ahead. Thank you for listening. All right. Let's bring on our guest. Jonathan Rosen, again, the author, and there he is. He's a a brilliant and heartbreaking account of an American tragedy. Um, And it's a haunting investigation of the forces that led his closest childhood friend. We all have one of those, that neighborhood guy that was our everything. From the brilliant promise to let's just call it tragedy and, and leave it at there. It's a wonderful heartbreaking book and a story that needed to be told. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just going to kick off with the, you know, the simplest question, but what inspired you to write the book? (laughs) 
The heart behind the iMom podcast is storytelling because every mom has a story to tell. I know that when I talk to my friends who are parenting and we share stories, we all end up feeling less alone and more capable of loving our kids well. You can find information everywhere on the internet. Some is bad parenting advice and some is pretty wise. We like to think there's a lot of wisdom on imom.com and when you combine that signature wisdom with a great story, it brings parenting to life. We want a mom who's listening to see herself and her kids in these stories and rest in the confidence that she is the perfect mom for her kids. Check out the iMom podcast with new episodes every Monday. Um, it is a simple question, but it because the book stretches back the length of my whole life, really, um, and begins when I was 10, which is when I met Michael, uh, it's not a simple question in a way. Um, I spent as many years not writing the book actively as I did writing it. And maybe that's hard to explain without saying a little something about the nature of the story itself, if I may do that. Please do. Um, the The thing is that um, Michael was my best friend. I met him when I was 10. He was brilliant. He was a much better student than I was. We were very competitive, but I had dyslexia and variant or not that anyone called it that now uh but and add my girls um who would not mind my saying so are the reason i know what i have <laughs> um, but michael had a photographic memory and he read with extraordinary speed and he was amazingly precocious and he was my guide through a lot of life uh, we both went to yale uh, michael graduated in three years i graduated in four um he had a psychotic break uh, the year after he left. He had been recruited by a management consulting firm, uh, but uh, even while he was working, he was already in what I later understood were the early stages of his schizophrenia, which is what he was diagnosed with. He became deeply paranoid. Um, eventually he was hospitalized. And um, what's extraordinary about Michael is that he had applied to Yale Law School. He had applied to every law school before his break, and he'd gotten into all of them. And so while he was spending eight months in a locked ward at Columbia Presbyterian, he learned he had been accepted to every law school. Um, he deferred Yale, and he essentially went from his halfway house to Yale. Uh, I'm ha I'll hasten to the end of the tragic part of the story, although what the challenge of the book and what was so important to me about the book was not to begin with the challenge with the tragedy but to go back to childhood so his life did not seem like a tragedy foretold because it wasn't there were many choices along the way and choices made even before he became ill but he went to yale law school he was profiled in the new york times because he was unable to get hired he decided to come out as he put it as a flaming schizophrenic and the new york times wrote a very um, laudatory profile of him, really heroic. And as a result of that profile, um, Ron Howard bought his story to be a movie uh, and Scribner's bought his story to be a book and he was paid over $2 million. He moved in with his uh, fiance and then he stopped taking his medication um, and he killed the woman he lived with and loved most of anyone in the world. And Ron Howard made a beautiful mind, which was excerpted in Vanity Fair the month that they were supposed to start shooting Michael's movie, Brad Pitt was going to play him. And the reason why I 
say all these things. These are all the public, mostly the public pieces of the story. But my friend who had been celebrated for his brilliance in the New York Times three years later was on the cover of the New York Post um, under a giant single word, psycho. The worst flip side of everything he had become because he had become enormously inspiring to many people. And um, so in a sense, many people knew his story, which was public. I, however, knew the private story and I didn't know the private story. I felt and lived of the private story as well. And so it wasn't just trying to understand the space between that Times profile and that horrific New York Post story, because neither of those was an accurate representation of Michael or his illness. Uh, it was understanding the 10-year-old boy who I met in 1973 when he walked over and introduced himself to me uh, the day I moved to the very short street. And he lived across the street from me. And so it was, that's a lousy answer, but it wasn't as if some I thought someday I've got to tell this story. It wasn't a story yet. It was a series of feelings, some horrible and some just deeper than words and some very powerful and important to me. And I just eventually felt I had to have an encounter with it. And since I'm a writer, my encounter was in words. Thank you. And we're glad, 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 glad that you did. And we've never had, I don't think, um, Randy or Mimi can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we've had a guest like you who has been a friend of the person with schizophrenia. So this is our opportunity not only to learn about your book, but to learn about that dynamic. And one thing we've talked about a lot, and that is a common story for mothers like us, and I'm sure um, Michael's mother as well, and I love how you write about her. Um, but we see our sons, you know, drifting away, not being the person that they were. And one thing that we grieve about is their loss of friends and their huge loneliness. It, it's really sad to see, you know, how their friends get married and buy houses and have children and, and move on. And, and we don't blame the friends because we understand, but it also is part of our grief. So I wonder if you could tell us from your standpoint, your, which is you know part of what's in your book, of course, but tell our listeners again, um, how that feels from your stand, from your viewpoint as a friend to see your friend changing, you becoming probably uncomfortable around him, and then wanting to be loyal, but your life is moving on and all of that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's enormously important, uh, and it, it's a little. Uh, it's complicated. I'm sure it's complicated in everybody's case, uh, but. Um, our friend, we had begun to drift and Michael had actually said to me before college, although we both went to Yale, uh, he didn't think he'd see much of me because I was too slow. And so in a sense, it's conceivable that in retrospect there, he was all, he, what I always admired about him was how bold he was. He was arrogant. I came from a very different kind of family and he had three, he, there were three brothers in his family and you fought for everything. I had a sister and everyone was always asking everyone else how they felt. So, um, <laughs> so his kind, his kind of, the way he put himself forward, correcting teachers was always part of his style. It became grandiose and in a way that I, in retrospect, I now recognize, but at the time I did not and found deeply uh, wounding. 
And so then when he had his psychotic break, I was astonished to feel that it was as if a part of myself had become ill. I realized how, although we were all, I had gone to grad school, we were, our childhood was our core connection, just how deeply bound we were. And I, when I went to visit him, it was a very powerful time. It was a very frightening time for me because as I was mentioning before, Michael was just a touchstone of high functioning for me. And to see someone so, um, so shaken from the inside and so um, his uh, delusions had been so extreme and he had believed them and he had thought his parents had been killed by replicas of his parents who then wanted to kill him. They were. It was such an elaborate story and he unfolded it for me so logically because he always had a very rational mind that even I'm embarrassed to acknowledge, but it's part of what frightened me before I visited him. He gave me all these instructions. Now they're not going to let you bring this book into the hospital. So wrap it in a brown paper bag and then bring, and, and I was, ga I was going about doing all these things. And my wife, she wasn't my wife yet. My girlfriend who was working in a hospital said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you have, you understand they won't let me in with this guide to the Bible. And my wife, my girlfriend then just smiled and said, I, I think actually he was having a delusion. And I yes. just realized how, first of all, I was used to deferring to his authority because he knew what everything was. He knew about the Watergate hearings. He would talk to my parents about it. But also because it was, and I didn't know any, I knew nothing about mental illness in any, severe mental illness in any way. Um, and so the idea that you could very logically follow a series of steps that derive from a false premise was new to me and frightening. And it had been frightening for him, more than frightening, because even when I saw him, he was not yet sure that they weren't going to, Mengele was not going to remove his brain. And what was also part of the strangeness of the whole thing is that my father's parents were killed in the Holocaust. Michael's father grew up in Brooklyn. They were both college teachers, but somehow, so for me, Nazis in New Rochelle, where I grew up, another day at the office. I mean, you heard about them all the time, but Michael felt he was being driven off the road by Nazis who were chasing him. And so in a strange way, this paradigm of horrible history had just become personal to him. So, and we, he wanted to study with me when we, when I visited him and he wanted to study Cain and Abel because he had become very religious and it was just fraught with all the pain. He didn't say how he did want to know why, why is uh, Abel's sacrifice acceptable and not Cain's? This is at the moment before. And, and I knew he was going to ask me that and I had no answer. Um, and so I think I also felt both ashamed and afraid. And, um, but then what happened, and this is a hard thing to explain, but I have no doubt that you will, will all understand it. Um, Michael was so celebrated for being brilliant. And we had shared that concept as the thing that defined us, that it's almost as if nobody would allow him to not be brilliant. And although the doctors at the halfway house had suggested he do something small first to recover his, to stabilize himself, because he had gotten into Yale Law School, people around him, including psychiatrists who were sort of family friends, all said, why on earth should he work at Macy's when he can go to Yale Law School? And so it seemed, and in retrospect, I also feel, I felt both the old competitive flair, but of course it went without saying, why would he do this other thing when he could go be brilliant? Um, 
it was not a good choice because he couldn't do the work, but he was continually celebrated. And so people kept telling him a story about himself. And it was very painful for me. I realized I've, I'm so filled with the story and stories that it's very hard to answer a small question, but I, to discover that his law professors who were very kind to him felt they were helping him by allowing him to feel he was doing the work when he was not, is, was quite tragic in its way, because again, for them, Macy's was the worst thing they could think of. And of course, the truth and sorrow is that there were not good options. There were not good places. There, when he, It had cost a lot of money for him to stay for eight months in Columbia Presbyterian. And so the psychiatrists who were sort of family friends had grown out of the community psychiatry movement, and they wanted to save him from the system at all costs. And so everybody was trying to allow Yale Law School to be a kind of asylum for him. And for me, he was back where he'd always been. And so I allowed, when he told me how extraordinary people found him, I allowed myself to be persuaded. Mm -hmm. And I haven't, and I failed him in that way. Um, and that, I mean, I, I knew, I, I did not know enough to say, to, to wonder about it or question it, but it's a complicated answer and it, it, and it, and it's a, and I'm not satisfied with it. And I think, but the honest thing to say is I, I wasn't a good friend. Well, I think there's a lot of guilt. You know, we all have guilt too. We could have done this. We should have done that. We should have learned about that sooner. And so it sounds like friends feel that way too. But I would say the fact that you visited him and kept in touch at all is extraordinary. Yeah. So Mimi, but, you know, you say you weren't a good friend. And I think a lot of us that resonates for us because a lot of us feel like we weren't good mothers because we didn't save them or we didn't fix it or we didn't fix the situation. But the thing is you're, you're uh, propelled into this world where there are no right answers and there is no way to really be a good mother. You know, I, I noticed that you noted that, um, Everyone said insight was the key, but the more insight Michael got, the sadder and lonelier and angrier he became. And that strikes a real chord for me because I remember reading in Dr. Um, Tori Fuller's book about um, saying that a lot of the, the majority of suicides with people with schizophrenia happen once they are stabilized on medication and have some clarity and understand what is going on in the anosognosia recedes and then they realize this is my life and this is what I have and they end it. And I'm just wondering, do you think that this is a part of why the mental health rights groups advocate against involuntary treatment? And what is your response to that, to their position about involuntary treatment? I guess that's um, a question. That's a, yeah, that, <laughs> That it's a large question, but yeah. I guess when it comes to involuntary treatment for those who need it in order to recognize the nature of their illness, a, so one piece, when I say, when I, my, my greatest moment of failure came when I was speaking to Michael, not many weeks before he killed Carrie, the woman he lived with. And we had a case, we would try to make, we would make an appointment to get together, which would always get, he would always cancel. But suddenly he said to me, I have to go. I'm having thoughts I shouldn't have, be having. And he hung up and I let him go. Uh, again, I knew very little at that point, but 
I understood intuitively if he was having thoughts he shouldn't be having, that something was wrong. And so this sense that he had already stopped taking his medication and was already moving away from the place where he understood that he needed medication because otherwise he would be back in the world that had precipitated his hospitalization uh, absolutely makes me believe that he required hospitalization or treatment. And in fact, one of the reasons I decided to write the book was talking to the daughter of one of the psychiatrists who had always kept an eye on him. And this psychiatrist, who was a wonderful woman, she had grown up in the psych, she had helped create the community psychiatry movement. She was telling her daughter that Michael thought his girlfriend was a space alien and sometimes didn't let her into the house. And the psychiatrist's daughter said, well, what are you going to do about it? And the mother said, we can't do anything. And when the daughter told me this story, and she loved her mother, who had died not long after this happened, which was 25 years ago, she loved her mother, but she wanted me to understand the wor a world in which a psychiatrist could say, there's nothing we can do. And that became, it's, it was both a psychological condition, my own, like I didn't think I could even say, well, what do you mean you, you're having thoughts you shouldn't have? And then ideas about what it means to treat someone who requires it and what it means for a whole system to take shape or to collapse based on these ideas. And so obviously different people require different things, but it would have saved the life of the woman he lived with and loved, and it would have saved his life in a way because his life was destroyed. And people felt they were, I watched it happen. They felt they were honoring his autonomy and they were in fact facilitating his illness. And um, when I visited him, although he was medicated when I visited him, it was the encounter with the power of his illness, which he was talking about, that changed everything for me as well. I understood it wasn't a social construct. I understood it was not uh, caused by, you know, psychoanalytic buried emotions. Uh, I understood that something, that he was sick and that that was, a, that was, he could do extraordinary things, but he required help for his illness and he wasn't getting it. So. There is, there's so, thank you. There is so many thoughts going through my mind right now. And, you know, one of, one of which is just, we all have those friendships of the kid that was slept at our house and they were part of our family. We slept at their house. And, and sometimes in high school, people drift apart and they pick different roles and they, you know, so, but to have your best friend exhibit behavior that, and we all did it. We normalized, oh, well, it's because he smoked marijuana. Oh, well, he's having a hard time in the new school. Oh, well, he's in with a new crowd of friends. Like we all do that. Friends do it. Parents do it because we don't want to think, we can't think that, especially when schizophrenia sort of doesn't come on suddenly with men, usually it, <clears throat> it kind of gradually happens. It, it, we just sort of watch and explain it to ourselves and say, okay, I guess it's okay. And I, I know when you, your book, which is such a tribute to your friend, but also a um, expose of the system and a memoir, just a memoir of 
you know, two young men who lived on the same street in New Rochelle, right down the road from me, because I live in Connecticut. And I, you know, understand that and just the things we do when we're teenagers and how it could get out of hand. The thought of working at Macy's when you graduated Yale Law School. I know my son, even more recently, was very stable before COVID and was a waiter, a celebrated waiter at a restaurant. Now to even think about working at a Macy's would be really hard for him. It would be hard for anybody. It's hard for the high school football player to then be a car salesman or, you know, because we, we all had these glory days in high school, but then you add schizophrenia to it. So I, I so appreciate your friend point of view and thank you for being so honest and sharing your guilt and I would, you know, I wish I'd known. And Nami always tells us, you can't know what no one has told you. Mindy's son also tried to walk away from his fears of his own action. And she can tell you that. Yeah. I'm curious about, I'm going to change the subject just a little bit um, about marijuana and what you feel um Michael was drawn to it. Do you feel that marijuana, we've noticed in our sons that I've certainly changed my mind and started to feel that it changes him. It may have changed him as a teen. I don't know what came first, chicken or the egg, but you know, knowing what you now know, and you have daughters, um, right? Uh, children, at least one daughter who's supposed to be your tech and she's in college. Okay. So, you know, what do you now know about marijuana? Not that kids would listen to us, but what would you say to people about that influence? I, I have very strong feelings about it. And um, I think that we're making a dreadful mistake by not simply making it as available as we now do, but promoting its benign and even beneficent qualities so that you would not imagine that it, if you were predisposed potentially to a psychotic break in the future, you would be harming yourself. That seems quite clear to me. I interviewed a scientist uh, who has told, when we were just chatting and I asked her about her kids and she said, well, she mentioned two of them and she said, one of them is 22. So she's still in the corridor. And I said, what do you, what do you mean by the corridor? And she said, well, her brain is still forming. And then she told me that her father had, or her grandfather had nine siblings and all of them committed suicide. And this was back in Australia. And so she said, there is no way, and she was a brain researcher. She said, and so my children know that until their brains are formed, they are they need to care for them and be mindful of them. And um, the interesting thing is, of course, I'm sure that many people have no ill effects or no lasting ill effects, but there are absolutely precipitating elements for people who are... Um, headed in that direction for genetic reasons of genetic predisposition. We don't know why. And what's interesting is the person who wrote a book a couple of years ago, he was a Times, he had been a Times reporter. It's called You Must Tell Your Children. And it's about the reality of marijuana. And he had actually thought it was a benign thing. He'd grown up, maybe he's a little younger than I am, but I mean, teachers wore t-shirts that said sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 70s. Um, 
but he so he but he wrote a book actually looking at the statistics which are very harrowing and what's amazing is i went and looked at his book and on the very first page he mentions his wife laughing at him for thinking it's benign and his wife worked at a forensic psychiatric hospital and she mm -hmm. said to him all my patients were involved with marijuana and and that was when he thought well i better look into this then and so in a sense you know we are we seem incapable of of um taking a middle path with almost anything you know if you know what i mean either it's everything is is forbidden or suddenly it's not only permitted but celebrated as as the ultimate usefulness. One of the things that interested me was how antipsychotic medication was introduced around the same time as LSD. And psychiatrists essentially had a drug in one hand for suppressing hallucinations and a drug in another that induced them. And the culture decided that the one that induced hallucinations was mind expanding. It was given a positive meaning that it actually enlarged your world and had truths. And so those who had those things naturally were almost a priestly class. And uh, how on earth could you simultaneously promote the other drug? And um, that's just the culture, you know, is always coming up with a fantasy or a metaphor of for something that is for other for the people who most experience it, the opposite of the fantasy. Um, we, the I, truth needs to be told. And I will put, um, tell your children, what is the name of the you book? I think it's, you must tell your children. You must tell your children. I'll put that in the show notes so that you can uh, get a hold of that. I know my son currently wouldn't, I can tell you right now, he's awaiting a court date in, in jail. You know, it's pre-trial, but been there a while. If, if there, if marijuana were not in his life, I can tell you a hundred percent, he wouldn't be there. A hundred percent. And it's just, and when I ask him, you know, we want to get you into a program that's going to help you with your substance abuse. It's like, well, I don't have an addiction. I have a problem, but I don't have an addiction. You know, and I, you talk about Michael and how the conversations you used to have as a teenager reminds me so much of my son. We used to have amazing conversations about God and about you know, uh, cultures and, and courtesy and should we do it and how do things happen? And he was a fascinating person to talk to until his mind couldn't be changed by any of my ideas and until his ideas got less and less logical as the weeks went on. I know you, you speak about Michael, even in high school, when he thought his parents were Nazis and he patrolled the house with a kitchen knife. I mean, it wasn't just in Yale when he suddenly had a psychotic break there were behaviors. And so you're saying marijuana may have been part of it. it it's very hard to pinpoint it. And we're not playing a game of who's And it was simply what, a but. rite of passage. I was my, what's for me, again, because one of the things that was so striking for me about Michael was that, and why I was so shaken when he became ill is that because I, though I talked a very good game, I, I was dyslexic. So I was, all, everything was subterfuge with me. I would always count around the table when we would go around at Passover to take turns reading so I could know when it was my turn so I could practice my little paragraph. But then, you know, your aunt goes to the bathroom and you're screwed because it, <laughs> so, but, but for Michael, it was all overt. He could just recite things from having read them once. And so I, I didn't, it, A, it didn't occur to me that at a certain point he was hiding things he was in fact seeing or thinking, but, but also it was, 
I, I already felt um, like I was barely included in the world we were supposed to be in and often wondered what would my family think of me? How I never said, you know, I really don't, I really didn't finish this or because the stakes for some reason seemed so high. And I think that that's, that that was part of the, um, the desire people felt to save him from what they imagined was a horrible alternative. Whereas it, I'd like to think we could live in a world where it wouldn't have to be a horrible alternative. And also someone, I think it was Mindy, you said, that it's not a straight line, you know, about when you were speaking of your son, but in the New York mm -hmm. Times profile, it ends with a quote from the Dean of Yale Law School saying that Michael had conquered his illness as if it were a mountain. And in a sense that was done with great good intention, but it did a great disservice to the journey he was on because that was not, he, no one conquers that illness. That was a colossally ignorant statement about mental illness. And I think this, uh, people are so smart that they can somehow cope with it or conquer it is part of our our thinking. We like to think that the people who suffer with schizophrenia, the people who are in prison and jail, unhoused on the street or living on the subway, are somehow lessers. They have mental illness. They're lessers. It must have been their family's fault, their mother's fault, their fault. Um, they must have used drugs. They must have done something. Something must have happened. And we like to think if we lead good lives, if we are really good families and mothers and we have smart children, um, this won't and happen friends. to us. It, and friends, it will protect us. I remember asking the psychiatrist when Jim was first diagnosed, I remember saying, will he still be smart? You know, I wanted him not to turn out to be one of those people that, you know, wasn't very smart because of his illness. So there was my bias right there. I wanted him to still be smart and, and doing well. But um, Randy mentioned earlier that, that I, my son had delusions like Michael did. He thought he needed to kill me. And thankfully he left the house. He didn't want to follow those delusions. He had a little bit of rationality but he thought he really should because I was an imposter. You know, this story of the parents or whoever is killed being an imposter is so common. You know, so if we were taught not only about marijuana and the dangers to the brain that's still in the corridor, but also about these symptoms of, of schizophrenia that, or, you know, any mental illness, but usually schizophrenia, it's very common to think somebody isn't the real person that was in a beautiful mind where, you know, he, that character, uh, John Nash was thinking horrible thoughts about his wife and she had to leave the house and was afraid of him. Um, there was just a person in the newspaper today that I read about a young woman, or she was in her thirties, um, who killed her mother. And the reason she did was because her mother wasn't her mother. She came at her with claws and actually scratched her. So this uh, young woman had to strangle her mother to death. She strangled her to death because it wasn't her mother. And that is just a common delusion. So why don't we know about it? And why don't we know that that person is in huge danger? It's not whoever they're going to kill or might kill, or in my son's case, leave the house and walk for hours because he didn't want to come home and kill me. But 
you know, the idea that we would just let people like that muddle along and live their lives without any intervention just incenses me. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of camp you're in about what should be done when someone has anosognosia and people do recognize that these are very common symptoms and that they're dangerous, but yet we wait longer before we intervene and help them. The way I try to describe it to people who come at it from without, you know, from a very different place is simply to say that if I, if I passed out on the street, maybe I had a heart attack, maybe I had low blood sugar, maybe I fainted. I would like to think you would call an ambulance for me because something had happened to me. You wouldn't ask where I wanted to go. You would know I needed help. And I understand that most people give the presumption of sanity is necessary. But if people understood the nature of the illness, that it affects a certain percentage of people and a fraction of what is itself a small percentage of people who untreated do not know they are ill, it would make a difference because that actually was the humane aspect of a diagnosis instead of demonic possession or a character flaw. So people felt that it was almost unseemly to suggest that this might be something that happened if they weren't getting the medication they needed. And the, the one of the exchanges, which is in my book that I found so moving, is the same dean who told the Times that Michael had conquered his illness, used to call his daughter, who was a year behind us at school and uh, dated Michael's roommate and wound up becoming a doctor and was training to be a psychiatrist. And he would call her and tell her what he considered to be amusing stories about Michael. And one of them was that Michael had said to him, this morning, I thought you were the devil. You were sitting on the foot of my bed, which was on fire. And the dean said to his daughter, I never realized people with schizophrenia were so neurotic. And the daughter, who was doing her rotation in Boston, working with mentally ill homeless people who had to be coaxed into the hospital and often refused care, the daughter said to him, Dad, you have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, and good. What's amazing is that both of them told me the same story. He found it a kind of amusing difference he'd had, but that's because he'd grown up in the era of psychoanalysis where everything was on a continuum. You could say this was neurosis instead of understanding what it really meant to be psychotic. And um, somebody mentioned Fuller's in, the, in Fuller Torrey's book. I, I know just that passage you were referring to, the sorrow of acknowledging the nature of your illness. And it it is a sorrow, I am sure, and I know I saw it, but it is preferable because it's the beginning of healing. And the idea that people would want to spare him that encounter with the reality he was in would be to join him in his unreality. And again, one of Michael's roommates, a guy I loved who died quite young, I learned from his brother died weeping because he felt we were all just worrying that Michael wasn't getting his due as we imagined it ought to be and had forgotten about Carrie. But what I now think is that it wasn't just that we only wanted to help Michael. We didn't understand that the way to help him was not to allow him always only to dictate the terms of his help when he was in a place um, that obviously and obviously required intervention. So I feel very strongly about it. 
and I, that's why I was so honored to speak at the Treatment Advocacy Center because assisted outpatient treatments and 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 one of Michael's professors who had clerked for a judge who had helped eliminate commitment laws was very down on assisted outpatient treatment and on Fuller Tory. And I knew from A. Fuller's book about how what a compassionate person he was, but also true compassion begins by understanding the nature of the problem you're solving. And yeah. um, and that was really sad for me because obviously he the professor was someone who would help to change laws. And so wow. I guess that was another reason why, as I wrote my book, I can't say it was the impulse to write it, but it felt important not just to tell stories, but to untell certain stories that I had once believed in that were false. You I were think that's part so of the many. power of your book is that yeah. you have that trans transition. And your last chapter where you talk about some of these issues, I think is is really powerful. And I, you know, people who read the, as Randy said, the memoir part and the the story part and your friendship, um, but the, when you comment also on the mental health system, I think that is is really powerful. Dr. E. Fuller Tory is my hero of all the people I've ever met and worked with with mental health. But I'm fully aware of people who don't like his work because of his um, strong emphasis on people getting help. But that's why I love him. <laughs> and, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. I'm going to throw the, um, you know, uh, Jonathan, you're giving me so many sound bites. I'm going to have to make a million of them, but I, I think I know which one I'm going to use. I'm going to throw the last question to Mimi. Uh, we're coming up on an hour. So Mimi, already, my gosh. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. We always feel like we could talk for two hours when we have a guest like you, Jonathan, but Mimi, I'll give you the final question. And then, then Jonathan, you'll have a chance to add anything we forgot to ask you. Okay, so Jonathan, you brought to mind something for me that I think is so pivotal in all of this, um, and it's twofold. One thing is that I think that there is a confusion about respecting a human being's agency and intelligence at the expense of watching them die from an illness. I think there's a, a, a misnomer that somehow we're we're insulting them by addressing the illness. And the illness is a completely different animal than their intelligence and needs to be addressed separately. And I recently had a conversation with one of my son's childhood friends because I ran into his mother and she said to me, you know, Mimi, you really ought to talk to Jack. I think he can explain a lot of things to you. And our kids are now in their mid-30s, so they're not children anymore. And I sat down with him, and I just heard some hair-raising things, you know, red flag warnings, of, you know, something is really wrong with this guy. And I said to him, I said, Jack, why didn't you say something to your mom or to me? Or, you know, if we had known these things were happening, we would have known to do something, but they, he said, you know, we were teenagers and we just thought everything was an extension of not getting our friends in trouble and the code of silence and all of that. And I wonder if when you were younger with Michael, did you have any instances like that where there were things that, that worried you or, or got you on a gut level and you just didn't talk about? Um, nothing so overt that I would have said, this is 
wrong and strange, but absolutely things that in retrospect, I I see as as connected to his ultimate illness for sure. Yeah. Um, but that's also the nature, it is the nature of being a certain age where you're always, you just want to be sane. I, I didn't use drugs because I just thought, I'm just hanging on by dental floss here myself. And so I didn't, you know, I tell a few harrowing stories, which were just fueled by old fashioned anxiety. I also think, and I noticed this with having had children recently in college, everyone is now taught that they're ill in some way. Mental illness is almost like the default condition. Everybody has a trauma and it does not, I do not mean to in any way belittle the suffering and the, and the journey people all make. But when everyone is ill, nobody is. And the term itself is used in this fungible fashion. So you just think, well, this is this is what I have. Everyone has something. And um, and in fact, that's why I put in my own anxiety in the book, because I then at one point took Prozac, not because I in any way equate it, but because I didn't want anyone to know, and I didn't want anyone to tell me I had to take it or that I couldn't stop taking it, it would have been useful for me if somebody had said, there are some illnesses and they are very particular and they affect the brain in this way. And But I, I simply didn't, you know, I had taken a year long Freud class. I just thought everyone, you know, like, like the professor, the no, professor. I really who, understand you know. what you're saying. And I think that, you know, that that's a very salient point. I feel very strongly in to point out to people always that there is a difference between all the mental health conditions and then there's a line and on the other side of that line is serious mental illness and it's a different animal and we have to treat it regard it and deal with it in a completely different way and that's where dr fuller tory is my hero too because he approaches it from the position that we mothers do, which is let's save their life first and then we'll worry about their feelings and, you know, all these other things is, you know, these kids, these people with these diseases, it's their life we're fighting for. And you don't have time to worry about if we're insulting their intelligence. I'm sorry, I just, I wanted to just add to that, that I think that people were so fearful of the the resonance of the name, like schizophrenia, you know, that it they didn't realize what Jeffrey Lieberman, who was a guest on your show, talks about that actually they're not perfect. There's a lot, we have a lot of thing work to do, but identifying an illness and getting someone what they require is the beginning of the journey. And I think people feel because in their minds they hear only a devastation better not to address it at all whereas what they're actually then doing is making it impossible to even get the person help and i was very moved to when i read surviving schizophrenia the the fuller toy book for families at it was stark but consoling i thought because it was filled with things to do and as what you said there's a rabbinic saying if you want to save someone's soul save his life don't worry about you know in other words someone's physical start there start with their physical need i yeah. love that um jonathan rosen you have been an absolutely amazing guest the time has flown by where can people get in touch with you get the book what do you want people to know about 
your book, your career. I know there's many other books in your bio, and I'll put that in the show notes that you've written. Um, how can people know more about you? Um, you know, disgracefully, I have no website. Uh, and I know it's disgraceful because <laughs> both my daughters have told me that. Um, and in fact, there's a really nice writer whose middle initial is W, which is, but is also Jonathan Rosen, who's a writer who writes for the Atlantic, as I do sometimes. And he gets lots of my email and forwards it to me. So I apologize <laughs> because, of course, I've gotten the most moving letters. Um, all I can say is I've, I've written a bunch of books. You Amazon, in a funny way, at least bundles me with my other books, perhaps. And um, you'll know more about me reading the acknowledgments of my book, where I thank, have many people to thank because I met so many wonderful people. Um, and I hope soon to have a website. I promised I would have one by the paperback. Well, thank and your you. daughters do it if they're after you. Oh, they she's doing do it. it. She's you. doing it. She has to. Oh, yes, she is. Exactly. Oh, good. <laughs> well, the book is The Best Minds, a story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. And it was published in April. It is wonderful. You can definitely find it on Amazon and wherever you get your books. And we hope you'll come back again. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you all so hey. much. This was wonderful. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches with Randy Kay, Mindy Greiling, and Miriam Feldman. To get in touch with us or to learn more about our books, please visit our websites at miriam-feldman.com, mindygreiling.com, or randyk.com.